0: Welcome to 13, a bi-weekly podcast where Colgate University community members answer 13 questions about their work. I'm your host, Daniel DeVries, and today I have the pleasure of welcoming to the podcast the Peter L. and Maria T. Kellner Endowed Chair in the Arts, Creativity, and Innovation, DeWitt Godfrey. Godfrey specializes in sculpture and public art, and prior to joining Colgate in 2003, he worked at the University of Georgia— Hofstra University, Mount Holyoke College, and Amherst. Outside the classroom, Gottfried is a working artist who has installed more than half a dozen public sculptures in parks and communities across the U.S. Gottfried has earned grants and fellowships from multiple organizations, including the New York Foundation for the Arts Artist Fellowship, a Japan Foundation Artists Fellowship, and a Lewis Comfort Tiffany Foundation Artist Fellowship. His work is in the collections of the Museum of Fine Arts, Houston, and the Brooklyn Museum in New York. His public sculptures are often enormous structures of steel bolted together and formed into circular or flowing patterns. Some of his work invites viewers to walk into or pass through the sculpture itself, while others are constructed in hard-to-reach but highly visible places. For example, his 2012 work, titled Concordia, is a fourteen thousand pound structure of fifteen steel cylinders atop the Lexington Laundry Company, leaning against the wall of a downtown art center, resembling architectural buttressing. Godfrey earned his Bachelor of Art from Yale University and his MFA from Edinburgh College of Art in Scotland. DeWitt Godfrey, welcome to Thirteen. Thank you, Dan so tell us a little bit about your journey to becoming an artist what were your influences and what was your pathway to where you are today
1: yeah well um uh, my father was an architect uh and my mother uh, taught and performed in theater community theater and so uh, uh at one point when i was uh, with an artist he said oh you're an art baby right so i kind of grew up in a an atmosphere in which art was um an important part of our life and uh but from the time I was could remember what I wanted to be, I wanted to be an architect. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went to college fully convinced that that was going to be my career. And um, <clears throat> while I was in college, I actually, I'd been taking too many drawing classes according to my advisor. And so he told me I had to take sculpture. So I went to a sculpture class uh, and I drew straws for the last place in the sculpture class with a graduate student in the architecture program and uh, here I am. So, huh. wow. Um, tell me a little bit about your art. Uh, maybe you can
0: describe uh, the form, the type of sculptures that you create, and maybe how you kind of uh, found yourself uh, working in those that that particular
1: medium or the different mediums that you use. Sure. Well, I was uh, I was drawn to steel and welding uh, during my undergraduate. I was taught that uh, by wonderful. Teacher Winifred Lutz, who was there, uh, and I was always interested in steel as a as a kind of fluid medium. Uh, we don't usually think of steel as something that's plastic, but uh, with fairly simple technology, you can make metal molten and then it hardens almost instantaneously. So you can move between these kinds of different states of the material. Uh, it's also um, in you know, steels a wonderful material because it's dynamic. Um, you know the innovations in a modern building you know uh, after cast iron that steel allowed us to build higher and stronger uh, because it actually it's flexible whereas iron is very rigid um, and so that kind of dynamic quality of the material always interested me uh, you know I guess the the work I'm the work I'm doing now was really uh, started with a breakthrough when I was in graduate school in Scotland in the mid 90s uh, where I made a sculpture out of uh, the steel packing strap that sort of deep blue stuff you, that holds down your dryer to the pallet and stuff when it comes to your house. And uh, it was very springy. I, I was trying to build a very thin surface, so I decided to weave those that metal strapping. And over the time of building it and then moving it from place to place, uh, I realized that every time I touched it, it changed form, right? So I'd built a, a structure that had a, a kind of behavior that, you know, you might sort of sort of overlaps with what we call kind of a nice natural behavior. And, um, you know, before that, I'd always been interested in uh, natural geometries, uh, seashells, honeycomb, uh, the uh, various ways that geometry sort of recurs at all different scales um, in the natural world, um, from the microscopic to the scale of galaxies. And uh, the work I made quoted those forms, right? They were kind of inspired by those forms. But these new works uh, and the work I'm doing now have a kind of dynamic behavior, right? Mm -hmm. And so instead of mimicking uh, or copying a a natural form, they sort of have a behavior. They're a system um, that has a certain kind of behavior. uh, And that, to me, seemed far more interesting and having a lot more potential. So that was in the mid-'90s. and. Since that time, I've just worked in different ways, primarily with steel um, and often very thin gauge steel, to see how I can um, develop these kinds of structural systems and by making simple changes introduce different kinds of complexities. So.
0: And I know you've worked with mathematicians uh, in the past, uh, collaborated with them on on some works. Do all of your pieces involve some form of mathematics in the construction, or is it kind of specialized depending on you know what you're doing?
1: Well, I mean, this this current work I've I've been working with a, a group of computational designers and engineers um, uh, whose original collaboration was sponsored by a Picker Interdisciplinary Science Grant here at Colgate. Along with uh, Tom Tucker, who's a professor emeritus, and another, <coughs> excuse me, another, another faculty member, um, a visitor from the University of Ljubljana, um, Tomas Pazonski, and that th- that formed the sort of core research group for our for our grant. And uh, so these computational tools are in in the in the sort of pure sense deeply mathematical, um, but the in the format that I use them, that mathematics is kind of Inside the machines, right? I don't, the math itself, the form of the math or the expression of the math is something I don't work with directly, but it certainly governs the behavior of these virtual designs as we do in the computer and where we can simulate gravity, we can simulate forces, we can uh, test a, a cylinder of one thickness or another and see how it, you know, give us some kind of parameters about how it's going to behave. So uh, the math is in there, but it's not. Um, it's not on the top, right? It's sort of more underneath. And, uh, I, I, in college, I, <clears throat> I wasn't, I've, I've never been very good at math, um, or the actual, the, the, the execution of the math, but I had a professor, um, in a calculus class. And I, I sort of had this kind of epiphany when I was finally understood at what a derivative was. And, and it seemed really beautiful to me, right? This kind of very interesting idea about how to measure the area under a curve. And, and I, uh, went to my TA and I said, well, you know, where did this come from, right? Who, you know, how did this come from? And he got me a little book um, by Alfred North Whitehead called A History of Mathematics. And, uh, you know, the, the sort of the conceptual or the imaginary, the imagination behind some of the most important mathematical or scientific discoveries, when you read about them or listen to the people who, who created these systems or discovered these patterns, uh, sounded awful lot like artists. And the, and the math, in a sense, is just the way it's described and to someone else, right? The, this powerful idea that there is this language of mathematics that does um, move at so many different scales is kind of this deep sort of subterranean thing that, you know, can describe the shape of our universe. And uh, since then, I've become like a, a sort of an amateur historian of mathematics and scientific history. Um, but uh, alas, I'm still, uh, you know... I stopped at, uh, you know, calculus one, so.
0: How did your work evolve into creating um, public works? Uh, You know, how Mm. did did you find yourself in a position where, you know, your your sculptures were going to be featured in areas that, you know, are public spaces? Uh,
1: That's interesting. I mean, I've been thinking a lot about that lately. Um, I would describe uh, myself as kind of an accidental public artist. Uh, I didn't set out to, you know, explore public art in a specific way as a kind of professional trajectory Uh, you know I've always you know my father was an architect as I said before I'm deeply interested in design and architecture you know the scale of architecture is something um, that has a kind of uh, well a relationship to the body in which you both participate right it has a kind of gravity and in the way in which it it, it influences our behavior Uh, but you know, originally I was doing these sort of larger scale, or I started doing these larger scale pieces when I was at, at Amherst College. That's it's an extension of the work I was doing in graduate school. And um, I found that I, I did a number of these installations that were more of a temporary nature. So they were often large, sometimes interior, sometimes exterior. And in order to find opportunities to make that work um, and to work at the scale where these systems um, – so we're most engaged, right? So this, the, the idea of weight and flexibility and sort of precariousness uh, kind of wanted to be this, or I felt like it needed to be an architectural scale. And so public art was the way I saw one avenue to try to um, sort of pursue work in that vein. And so, uh, you know, the, I did many temporary public works up until about uh, 2012. That piece Concordia you talk about, that was my first um, permanent public project, uh, and then uh, the during the period when we worked on the, in the Picker interdisciplinary science grant, and we created Odin, which is here um, between Olin and Ho Hall down in the courtyard. There, um, you know, it gave it it created an opportunity where before before that the works needed to sort of be engaged with architecture or trees, right? They were kind of shaped by their context in a literal way. They were kind of almost like you stack firewood or make a stone wall, you know, you needed support. And with these new tools that we developed in that grant and which we're still working with, you know, I can make structures that are independent, right? But with, but their interior set of conditions create interesting possibilities and behaviors. And it really wasn't until, you know, I was able to make these freestanding structures that the, you know, the commission started coming more frequently. (laughs) And I know you say large. What, what Give a sense of scale. What's your largest work? Uh, well, the largest piece I've finished to date, we just finished uh, just under a month ago uh, in Denver, Colorado, for a project at the 39th Avenue Greenway. It's a one and a half mile long linear park that was constructed on top of a very, very massive stormwater management project. Um, and like many of these other projects I work on, there's a percent for art ordinances and Many cities uh, Colorado and Denver is, have some of the oldest percent for art programs in the country. Um, so some percentage of that budget is allocated for art. Yeah. Um, and so I, I did this piece at the east end of this park. It's called East Gate, and it's, um, it's about 62 feet wide, uh, about 22 feet high, and 10 feet deep. But the, the, real, the real change in this one is it's, uh, you know, it's almost 30 tons of material. So it's by far and away the heaviest and most, in that sense, most complex and uh, demanding project we've worked on to date. Uh, it took us almost a year to build, uh, and uh, it spans a two-lane road and also a bike path. So, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about the materials that you use in your work? Are
0: they found? Are they purchased directly? Are they new materials? Mm-hmm. Like, wh- Where do you find the steel and the things that go into your sculptures?
1: Yeah, so I use a... I use a kind of steel that the brand name is core 10 it's a weathering steel alloy the for the technical geeks out there it's either a 606 or a 588 is the alloy number um it's a product that uh that is designed to oxidize or rust and then but then that rust forms a protective coating so the steel you know the oxidation ceases um so you see it um you see it a lot like in bridges and guardrails. um Nearby here, up in the Adirondacks, the guardrails you see that are rusty, that's a weathering steel alloy. <laughs> it's a very popular material out in the southwest, actually, in the middle mountain part of the country. So anyway, the so that's one of its interesting properties. It has a beautiful patina that, that sort of grows over time. Um, but it's also, because of the alloy, it has a lot of nickel in it. And so therefore, it's stiffer, right? So the kind of mild steel that we use, say, when I teach sculpture here, uh is a is a mild steel it when it bends it stays bent right at some point but the corten is more like a spring right mm-hmm. so it has a it has some properties that over the course of working with this material that I've tried to take advantage of so the even though in these early installations the you see the pieces that are compressed almost like soap bubbles or something when we would take them apart they'd spring back pretty much to their original diameter so Um, so that material is, uh, you know, that's how I started using it. Um, and I get it from a specialty steel dealer in Alabama. I've been working with the same place called Central Steel Service, uh, in Northern Alabama, the, one of the heart of the steel industry in the South. And, and then, um, so we buy that in sheet goods or in the case of the Denver project, we had some C channels, uh, that the, Generally, the steel is shipped directly to a place called Custom Laser in Lockport, New York, just outside of Buffalo, where the pieces are laser cut, and then those are delivered to the studio here, and then we roll them and shape them as necessary. Hmm. Have you had any problems getting materials as a result of the pandemic? Um, not so much problems, but some uh, some catastrophic rises in prices. Oh, uh, yeah, the price of corten has gone up. Uh, a little over 400% in the last uh, 12 to 15 months. Oh, um, you know, the project for Denver, we we got it ordered sort of just in time, but we're working on a new project in Alameda, California, which has been um, delayed because the, you know, the if, if I'd bought the steel a year ago, um, it would have been a certain price, and now it's uh, uh, more than three times as much. So we had to work with the city and the client there to try to come up with a strategy to, you know, make up some of that difference. So it's the, the city has come through and is going to, you know, agreed that, you know, that to build the piece we wanted to build, we needed a little bit more budget, but, um, yeah, I've never had like a materials escalation clause in my contracts before, but I think I will do now going forward. Yeah. Yeah.
0: How do you select the areas where these things are built or do, do people come to you?
1: Uh, it's, you know, with the, with the public art projects, um, Sometimes it can be like, it's like, we need public art here, right? It's a plaza or uh, a park, you know, and they, the city or the client, you know, has decided this is where we want the art to be. So uh, I, I apply for lots of projects, say, that were roundabouts, right? So roundabouts are this new, you know, a new phenomenon around the country. Um, there's lots of commissions for roundabouts, so that's pretty straightforward. But say, like with this project in Denver, uh, you know, the, the park was – quite long and they didn't come to us with any preconceptions about where the work should be so part of the uh, the process when I was selected as a semi-finalist was to identify some locations that I thought would be appropriate and then you know propose a specific work for there so um, and then sometimes I've done I've done a handful of private commissions as well uh, you know and those are more often conversations with a with a, a client or you know uh, you know where where they're imagining something, where I see something, so sometimes it's quite prescribed, and sometimes you have more uh, more input on where the work will go. But the the real interesting thing about doing these public projects is that everyone is, on you know, and they're all sort of part of public art, but they're all completely unique, right? It's uh, and not just in terms of its their physical locations, but the the group of people you engage with. Um, you know, sometimes people are very experienced. Sometimes it's community members who know very little about art per se, um, but are you know passionate about their neighborhood. Or so there's there's a lot of what I describe as kind of teaching, right? Um, something I noticed early on in trying to you know to do these projects is that you know you have to sort of persuade somebody sometimes who's not necessarily a hundred percent on board of why your work or why sculpture at all sometimes um should be you know should be cited or paid for um you know and i think with students sometimes you know i think we sometimes we underplay the persuasive part because we ask them to take on difficult ideas or things they don't agree with and things that might make them uncomfortable or they haven't done before and you kind of have to you know you know convince them that you know you're not going to let anything terrible happen to them right you know that if you let me do this, if you follow me, right, you know, I, you know, I'm pretty sure you'll be, you know, I don't know if you'll be hundred percent happy, but I don't think you'll be disappointed or, or feel taken advantage of somehow.
0: Mm. You know, these
1: works tend
0: to be so large and heavy that I, I do wonder, have you ever injured yourself in the process of building or installing one of your pieces?
1: uh well knock on wood uh, myself you know other than a, you know a smashed thumb or you know a kind of some scrapes and bruises uh you know you're reminded all the time you know that this is in the heavier it gets the the more potential there is for um for accidents and i'd have to say probably you know but i've tried very hard to as as things have grown in scale to be uh to be as careful as possible and also to make sure that we have all the right tools and equipment and stuff for those things. But I've, you know, I've never myself been, you know, like I said, knock on wood, seriously injured. Yeah. You write on your website,
0: my work is grounded in responding to the environment, both the physical site of each project and the abstract geometry of the natural world and community engagement through how my sculptures respond to the real world and its larger social implications. So tell me a little bit about the social implications or I guess some Mm -hmm. of the thought that goes into these pieces.
1: Yeah, well, you know, sort of building on, on on what I just said about this idea of, um, you know, when you have community members and you know and, and who are sometimes very rightfully skeptical of what the value of art is, um, why is public sculpture? I mean, so you know, through the ordinances, these public art ordinances I mentioned earlier, um, you know, they are obligated to spend this money, right? This is not; they don't have a choice, um, and so you know, you have to sort of engage with that community you have to um, you have to listen uh, you know sometimes you have to compromise I mean we don't often I don't think people talk about art enough actually is sort of the kind of compromises that you have to make but you have to be willing to sort of participate with the community members and the stakeholders themselves to um, to get their support so that when the works finally, Uh, installed, um, it's something that they're looking forward to rather than an imposition or that some, you know, mysterious body picked and then plopped down without any kind of input from the community. So I think, you know, one of the things I like most about working uh, in public uh, is this, that kind of dialogue and exchange the, you know, it's not for every artist. I mean, if you're an artist who wants to be left alone and do exactly what you want to do. You know, public art's probably not where you need to be, but I find the the kind of engagement and the 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 art, sort of exploration of what's possible with art, right? The way it can create place, the way it can galvanize a community, um, the way it asks questions of people. That is, uh, you know, I'm I'm for an art that's uh, not necess- not provocative, but but somewhat challenging, right? That it, that asks questions of the viewer. That isn't simply you know, a bright, pretty bench or, you know, something that's, you know, that's more whose purpose is only decorative, right? So, um, so I think this idea of what's possible and what the role art can have in a larger kind of civic discourse, I think is a, a really interesting place to be. Hmm. Can you walk us through your creative process? What does it look like when you first start
0: uh, a project? How do you go about I guess, thinking about the design and then, you know, from that to the creation and where do the, how does the idea develop?
1: Sure. Well, the, you know, sort of to begin with, the uh, you know, every artist's work, uh, and no matter what your form, whether you're writing or making music or dance or whatever, is that you build on the things that you've done before, right? So I'm, you know, at this point, I've been at this for, you know, s- several decades. Um, I have some ideas about forms I want to explore and I often have from building another project, I'll have sort of isolated an idea or a form that I would like to see. Um, but then, you know, when you're working in these public locations, the really a critical thing is is to make a work that is um, specific to that location, right? So every piece that I do for a public project is very um, conscious um, of of the physical site. Uh, and so, for example, the piece in Denver had to go over a road. Um, the, the span over the road had to be a minimum height for truck traffic, right? There's a lot of these kinds of conditions that go with the thing. Then the engineer tells you it has to be this thick, it has to be this strong. So all of that kind of comes together, and um, and then it sort of gets filtered through of these, you know, we've these are things we've learned, these are things we're interested in, you know, the one in Denver is a very quite new approach it's more kind of a looks almost like a continuous ribbon of steel rather than the discrete elements so and that was an idea I'd been kicking around in my head for quite some time uh, working with the design team that I have you know we we'd we'd actually proposed it for a couple of other projects but this is the one that like really you know where we were really able to exploit that so I'm always kind of looking for an opportunity to sort of push the Push the work itself that is can we try something you know new or can we expand on something that we've done before Uh, you know and every projects different right everyone's everyone's really different so you know that the way that we respond to the place and then again this kind of um, sort of catalog of ideas and and tools really that we've developed um, you know is, is sort of we sort of see how we can put those to use are there any artists uh, or artist works that you
0: look at as your biggest inspiration? Is there mm-hmm. certain certain folks that you look at as? Uh...
1: Yeah, I think um, you know. In terms of inspiration, um, I think probably my you know my one of my earliest inspirations when I was in college was a, an artist named Richard Serra. Um, very very well known, probably one of the most well known contemporary sculptors alive, and uh, certainly had to do with the scale that he worked at and. He also uses a lot of Corten steel by kind of – that wasn't how I started out making sculpture, but that's sort of where I've ended up. There's a kind of a a corollary there. But it was really the – it was the sort of what I've described as sort of artistic ambition, right? So I'm interested in artists that seem to be – you know, it's not – it doesn't have to be about scale. It doesn't have to be about weight, right? It doesn't have to be about size, but a kind of artist that seemed to be – you know, pushing themselves or pushing the idea of what sculpture can be or how a material can behave are, are ones that I really like. Uh, right now, there's a, a sculptor named Carol Bove whose work I'm really attracted to. And it also had, it's has this real materiality. I, pro- I guess the materiality is really the where I, I sort of look to. Um, oftentimes, I'll see a work and I'll say, gosh, I wish I made that, right? You know, it has this kind of honesty or authenticity that you hope that your work has. Um, yeah, so I, I would say I think probably generally I'm, I'd describe myself as kind of a materialist. <laughs> you know that I'm really interested in material, I'm really interested in sort of novel ways of, or thinking about how material can be used and put together and then how these systems can sort of expand our ideas of what um, art should be or what, you know, or that can have a kind of behavior which you know, places them somewhere between um, a natural and a man made object. Hmm. And your title at Colgate is um, an endowed
0: chair. So you are the Peter L. and Maria T. Kellner endowed chair. Uh, in arts, creativity, and innovation. Can you tell me about that title and what that
1: means to have an endowed chairship? Sure. I mean, I was—I um, um, feel really honored right, to have been uh, selected for this chair. It's um, one of a group of chairs that uh, are part of Colgate's third century plan. Uh, also coincides with um, our middle campus initiative for arts, creativity, and innovation, which is um, moving ahead full steam just down by the art building and promises to really um, give us the possibility to do some really things that Colgate doesn't, or actually I think we do do them, but we don't, they could be better supported. Uh, and, and really, I think the, you know, getting that chair, is a, you know, it's an honor and it, and it's sort of an affirmation that, you know, the, not just the work that I do of my own, like the sculpture we've been talking about, but just the other ways that I've tried to contribute to the arts at Colgate Um Uh, In producing events, uh, curating shows, Um, you know, one of the most pleasing and unexpected things that, uh, you know, in my academic career has been the opportunity to produce the work of others um, and to help artists uh, realize projects that they might not be able to do otherwise. I think the university and particularly the private university uh, can have a really important role in the production of creative knowledge and artistic content rather than just the presentation, you know, but we can actually you know, I ask artists, well, what do you want to do? What's something you haven't been able to do before? How can we, you know, we have this interesting set of resources here. You know, not infinite, but um, but we can make a real difference in an artist's life. And and the other thing I'd like to say is that actually, you know, to go back to the scale question, right? We were talking about the the the, the scale of these works, and you know, these are these are initial experiments that I worked on. That you know, before these permanent projects. Um, you know, started, uh, were really supported by the university. Um, So I have, you know, I directly owe the university, not just here, but also at Amherst College, um, for allowing me to kind of work at a scale and the freedom to do those things that I'm not sure I would have had in the market, right? That is um, both the space, the financial support, and then certainly the, you know, the picker interdisciplinary science grant was really transformative for my career. And, uh, you know, it was this moment where there was a big shift, right, a real, a complete shift in my work. You know, the materials are similar, the vocabulary is similar, but the, the ways in which that, the opportunities that gave me to think not only to do these permanent commissions, but also to think about different ways of working, um, you know, in this sort of, this computational design and parametric design, as it's called, um, you know, these tools are really, you know, we see it mostly in architecture. Um, and, uh, you know, to sort of put those tools to use in a creative process has been really transformative. And I can't say enough about the support Colgate's giving me to do those things.
0: You made it to question 13. <laughs> um I'm curious if you could design any class at Colgate and the budget wasn't a, a factor yeah. or, you know, interest in the class wasn't a factor um, and fitting into the curriculum wasn't a factor, what would that course look like? And, huh. um, you know, what would what would you be teaching students?
1: Let's see. Um, well, you know, there's a I'd have to say there's a class. I don't know where it would fit in the curriculum. And and it's a class that I've actually talk to some different uh, of my different members of the faculty, my colleagues here and that would be a, a class that's on on perception and in the way that um, how can I describe this simply so say when we I have a drawing class and uh, and I put a stack of cardboard boxes in the center of the room and I ask students to draw that boxes that they that they see and uh, often students will draw, Boxes, but not necessarily the boxes that are in front of them, because our our brain and the things that we've learned, we have an idea of a box in our head, right? That can overtake the act of observation and then translation through drawing or some other kind of physical mechanism. And uh, I'm really interested in that the the way in which the role of observation, because I think all great art starts with some kind of observation you know this sort of you know for me it's observing how material behaves um, observing these interesting facts of you know the geometric basis of our the space time that we live in Um, but in neuroscience um, you know there's some really interesting things is that how our our brain can deceive us um, about you know in terms of what we see right Mm -hmm. that is the brain is a very good at filtering knowledge, right? So it's, it's very good at processing knowledge and allows us to be artists and writers and so on. But it, mostly what it's doing is it's taking things out, right? Because if we had to take in all of the physical or visual stimuli that are around us every second of our existence, we would be completely overwhelmed, right? Mm-hmm. We'd be sort of unable to decide what to do. And so the, there's lots of interesting kinds of neurophysical um, examples of uh, the way in which the brain um, you know helps us to go through our life and Doug Johnson who's up in uh, psychological and brain sciences um, one of the things he studies is this phenomenon that is in the way in which um, the way in which our brain or how easily we can be deceived to believing one thing um, when in fact something else entirely has happened or, you know, the role of memory. So I think I would like to do a a kind of interdisciplinary kind of course in which we had people from many different disciplines that talked about that, you know, the way in which um, how hard it is to be present in the moment and to really understand the world as it is in front of us. Um, When we, our brain is already wired to prevent some of that, and also that the things that we learn, the way we learn to rationalize the world also um, prevents us from really having a kind of a genuine experience of a situation, right? And I think teaching drawing is one of those ways in which you can really examine that, right? You can sort of prove that, you know, yeah, that's a nice box, but it's not that box, right? (laughs) That angle, you know, from this particular position, right? Where you're sitting right here it looks this way, right? It doesn't, you know, if if we move six inches to the right or six inches to the left, it completely changes. It doesn't, it may not seem at first that it changes significantly. It's the same six boxes, but everything changes depending on your position. And, you know, that kind of idea of of perspective is position, right? I think it has great sort of metaphorical um, ramifications as well. We always, you know, our positionality, our place in the world, our, you know, our point of view—all of these things are, you know—we've created a language that does that is rooted in that physical fact, right? When you are in one place, the world looks one way, right? Mm. But we are almost never in one place, and we're almost never holding still. So that able the ability to synthesize all that different points of view uh, together is what you know is the challenge, I guess, right? Sort of.
0: That was 13.
1: Ah. Thank you, DeWitt Godfrey, for joining the show today.
0: That was great. If you would like to see some of DeWitt's artwork, um, visit him on the web at DeWittGodfrey.com. That's D-E-W-I-T-T-G-O-D-F-R-E-Y. If you have any questions or if you'd like to uh, ask uh, DeWitt any questions about his work, feel free to email the podcast at 13 at Colgate.edu That's 13 the number. And until next time, keep asking questions. 13 is a production of the Colgate University Office of University Communications. Executive Producer, Vice President for Communications, Laura Jack. Audio Engineering by Brian Ness. Logo Art by Catrail Pritz. Research Assistance provided by Colgate Sophomore and Media Relations Intern, Marianma Lemon. And I'm your host and producer, Dan DeVries. Visit ColgateMagazine.com and ColgateResearchMagazine.com for more in-depth university news and research stories.